SOAS Radio. So welcome to Professor Playlist. I'm very glad to welcome Stephen Chan in our studio at SOAS Radio. Welcome, Stephen. Great to be here. How are you doing? I heard you recently celebrated a big birthday. I've reached the magic age of 70, which of course is the new 23. Absolutely. And you're still doing your 200 kicks a day. so 200 kicks, each one at head height, ruining bags in the gym. You've got to keep doing this kind of stuff. Absolutely. So when I'm, when I'm 70, I hope I'll do some 200 kicks a day. <laughs> very, very important. With intent. You've got to visualize your enemies. <laughs> And there are many, aren't there? I and hope. not just here at SOAS, but around <laughs> the world, I've collected all of these enemies. So I hope we'll be able to speak about some of those today as well. But um, you brought some pieces of music with you, and uh, we're going to talk about them and about your time at SOAS. Can you just remind us when you first started here? Oh, let me see. It does seem forever ago. I think I came down in 2002, which means I've been here far, far longer than I thought I was going to be. So these things creep up on you. I came down as the foundation dean of what was then the Faculty of Law and Social Sciences and proceeded to annoy, dismay, and generally make all kinds of mockeries of established procedure for a quite a long time. Well, congratulations to that and to making it for so long and both at SOAS and in life in general. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's start with your first piece of music. You brought us a piece by the well-known band The Doors called Yes, The River Knows. What does this piece mean to you? Well, it comes from the very, very popular album Waiting for the Sun and it's precisely the motif of the sun. Jim Morrison was being taken quite seriously as a poet uh, in those days. And I remember reading one of his pieces in which he woke up one day to find that the sun looked like a stranger. The sun had somehow changed. And in his poem, he's going to follow the stranger sun. So waiting for the sun is actually about a new departure. The song, Yes, the River Knows, was meaningful to me. I was 19 the time. So this is a long time ago, but about the same age as most SOAS students. And I had grown up in a very conservative family in a very conservative Chinese diaspora community. And New Zealand itself was a depressingly conservative country. And we were planning at university a series of radical direct actions of a political nature, particularly in protest against the Vietnam War. New Zealand battalions were actually fighting on the side of the Americans in Vietnam. And the major direct action we were planning and later executed very successfully was the occupation of the United States consulate in Auckland. Something like that had never been done before, so the police didn't know how to respond. So we basically held the consul hostage for quite a number of hours before we finally got ourselves arrested and criminal records for our uh, pains. But what this meant was that uh, one was exorcised and excommunicated, basically, in the Chinese community. My family were very, very unhappy. My whole life basically got turned upside down as a result of that. The song Yes, the River Knows was the song I played to myself when I was hitchhiking up and down New Zealand uh, along the Waikato River, the most famous river in the north part of New Zealand, and basically making up my mind that I was going to do all of these things. You know, I'm leaving, I just need a little time were key words in that. And the lovely words to my mind at that time was, 
going to drown myself in mystic heated wine. In other words, the whole future is insecure. One might as well drown oneself in mystic heated wine. <laughs> That's lovely. Thank you for that. Um, let's listen to a little bit of Yes, the River Knows by The Doors from the album Waiting for the Sun, which was recorded in 1968. Please believe me The river told me Very softly Want you to The River Knows by the Doors. Stephen, this was in a time of change for you. So you were saying you were you felt like you had to leave, you were going as well. I think in the end, being thrown out <laughs> was a more accurate way of putting it. But yes, it was a fundamental period. 68, 69, just like in Paris and around the world, were times of tumult and upheaval, even in, in a small, faraway country like New Zealand. And so I was very much in the leading edge of the radical student movement at that point in time. These were, as I said, the first direct action campaigns uh, that the country had ever seen. Later, of course, as everywhere they became more commonplace. And later, of course, as you get seconded to more and more committees, you also slightly moderate your more radical tendencies. Have you ever done a sit-in since? Oh, yes. Let us say direct action didn't fade completely from <laughs> one style of life. Yes, it should always, especially at SOAS, always has a place in our hearts, doesn't it? I've in a very, very polite and judicious way. They supported various occupations here at SOAS. Also, of course, when I was a dean and in other responsible positions, very much try to put the point of view of the students to the management. There's always the possibility of a negotiated settlement. And of course, I was very honor-bound to try to deliver those. So what happened then after you actually left or were thrown out? Well, I had to... Uh, earn a living 
I've done just about everything a Chinese person is meant to be, including being a Chinese laundryman. The one thing I haven't is to have been a Chinese waiter. I thought that was one core too far. But I also apprenticed myself to a rock and roll promoter. And so we organized some of the very first tours of New Zealand by leading rock bands of the day, including Led Zeppelin. No way. So you've met, you've, you were their tour manager, kind of, or uh, you, were, you were working with them on their tour in New Zealand? I think I was their drug adult assistant on core, the gopher. <laughs> so they were very gentlemanly. Uh, all the stories uh, that you hear about wild, drug-filled rock and roll uh, were true, of course, except that not always quite as wild as legend uh, yes. pretended they were. I mean, they did have to get on stage and perform, and they were truly professional. Once they got up there, uh, they knew exactly what they were doing. So the next song I chose, I mean, everyone chooses it, uh, Stairway to Heaven. We held the Auckland concert of Led Zeppelin in the crater of an extinct volcano. And it was one of these very, very cloudy, overcast nights. And literally, as Jimmy Page opened up with that very plangent acoustic guitar solo at the beginning, uh, the clouds began parting. And Robert Plant's first few words of the song, you could see the stars. And so although it's a very hackneyed song, it's every oldster's sort of song list sort of number one. Uh, in fact, it was such a magical occasion that evening. And I think the whole crowd of some tens of thousands, which was a very, very big turnout for Auckland, New Zealand, everyone had their breath taken away at that moment in time. Because it was also the same era uh, of all kinds of things beginning to happen, quite apart from protesting against the Vietnam War. Feminism was just starting to become an organized movement on the campuses. People were talking about a gay rights movement again on the campuses. And the very, very first flush of a radical Maori movement, basically modeled on the Black Panthers in the United States, was also just beginning to get underway. So all of these things seemed hopeless and at the same time hopeful. Strangely enough, this hackneyed old song was regarded as a very hopeful anthem for those days. I wound up as the public relations advisor, basically the spin doctor for the women's liberation group, the gay liberation group, and the Māori Natamatoa, young warriors group, despite being neither gay nor female nor Māori. But in those days as now, how you spin the message becomes key. Well, let's listen to a little bit of um, the famous Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. She's buying stairway to 
she wants to be sure Cause you know sometimes words have two meanings In the tree by the brook There's a songbird who sings Sometimes all of us sorts are misgivers That's right And this track was from 1971, so a few years later you were still a student? Yes, yes, 71. I was finally getting around to actually completing my degree. Uh, we had slightly more flexibility in those days, and <laughs> I often had, let us say, other cause of my time. And in fact, when you talk about the 60s and the early 70s, as times uh, in which a whole new liberal approach to how you lived your life was apparent. Uh, they're not legends, it was true. So there are at least two years at that point in time where I've got no conscious memory except nighttime, uh, a very hazy nighttime uh, set of memories, obviously underneath the influence of various substances, none of which I can, of course, officially recall. Sounds like the 70s to me. <laughs> um, so... Yes. Um, you. When did you make it to London? Well, basically, it wasn't until 1976. And the impulse to go to London was a very, very simple one. By then, I'd been elected the national student president. Now, that's different to what you might imagine it to be here, a small country with only seven universities. I employed 22 salaried staff. I ran an international airline or student businesses. Basically, what you had was the makings, as it were, of an education for doing almost anything in later life. And so running that, together with the cantankerous usual nature of student politics, was a very important part of my formation. But then I went on to become the youngest editor of a major newspaper in the country. So we circulated about 70,000 copies each week a tabloid newspaper and the 10th largest circulating newspaper in the country. Basically, the idea struck me very forcefully one day that I was peaking far too soon and peaking far too soon because of being in a very small environment. So decided to go to a much larger environment and then to the decision to come to Europe. It was a choice either of coming to the University of London for a second stage of graduate work or going to the University of Paris uh, the Sorbonne. I had uh, gained admission to both, but I decided with quite cold feet at the last minute, I really didn't have good enough French to be able to make a success of studies at doctoral level at the Sorbonne. So I decided to come to King's College here in London instead. I uh, lived in Camden at first, just around the corner from where Amy Winehouse later lived, uh, where the Irish Centre is, where SOAS still holds exams from time to time. But in those days, it was totally derelict. And then by a series of accidents, uh, moved after one term to South Kensington, Chelsea, which was anything but derelict. And so the fullness of not even one academic year uh, saw both sides of London uh, very, very much up front, up close. That was your first impression of London. What was it like moving from New Zealand 
Well, I took a long time to get used to the idea of how dirty the place was in terms of smog, in terms of just the detritus in the air that you were meant to breathe. Of course, it was bitterly cold in the winter, and New Zealanders who grew up in temperate and semi-tropical climates are just not used to that. So it took a long time to adjust. Also, King's was such a bloody dowdy and conservative place. It hasn't changed at all. Uh, you know, it still is the conservative bastion of the University of London system. But the standards were much higher than uh, academic standards in New Zealand. So in a way, it was almost like having to learn anew what it felt like to be a good student, to be a successful student, become something of uh, a star public intellectual in New Zealand. You couldn't do that here not on the basis of what I was producing and publishing at that point in time. So it was a very humbling experience, one for which I was very, very grateful, you know, learning how to do it for real rather than being a big fish in a small sea. That mm -hmm. syndrome of being a big fish in a small sea is something I think we all need to guard against. You've got to keep moving to larger and larger challenges. Um, well, I'm glad that you found, found the right journey for you um, in that move. When did you then, so was it clear for you in New Zealand already that you wanted to go and stay in, to, in academia? It wasn't clear it was going to be academia. I wanted to have a position where I could write. I'd been doing a lot of writing and publishing uh, in New Zealand, and not just for my own newspaper, but I published very, very widely in literary journals in particular, uh, and in arts journalism for other newspapers and magazines. And the beginnings of some kind of effort at what you might call political journalism, journalistic political philosophy, uh, trying to work out uh, the ideas that were coming from the outside world, what exactly was motivating the Black Panthers, for instance, trying to get my head around my early readings of Franz Fanon, all of that kind of thing, which is very, very difficult to do in New Zealand because you didn't exactly have intellectual resources to help you. Uh, so a lot of this had to be worked out by Uh, oneself, and writing was very much a means of trying to express what one was trying to work through. So I wanted to have a place where I could keep on writing. What I found, of course, was that as an academic life here, uh, getting yourself taken seriously by publishers was much, much harder uh, than in New Zealand. Uh, so I remember early discussions with big-name publishers like Jonathan Cape, for instance, who were very, very kind Uh, they gave me time of day, they listened to my ideas and my proposals before very, very politely showing me the door. But <laughs> I understood what was going on. I was grateful for the advice that I received. And again, it was part of the relearning of how to be what you wanted to be. So the next track, I believe, is connected to all of this. Can you tell me a little bit, or can you tell our listeners a little bit more about Well, Catano Veloso uh, was not the world's most outstanding musician. Many people have a very high regard for him. I think he, he's still alive. He's still alive, yeah. and he's made his mark uh, with uh, people with a more jazz-influenced approach to music like uh, Gilberto Gil in the Tropicalia movement in Brazil. Brazil was a right-wing dictatorship at that point in time. And uh, still is. <laughs> yeah. Well, let us say it's lurched backwards and forwards. It's re-entered an authoritarian moment. The young people at that point in time uh, involving themselves in politics found they couldn't involve themselves directly in politics. 
The death squads, for instance, were not just a figment of the imagination. So they did it in music. And the Tropicalia movement was very much a protest movement. It had to be very subtly articulated. In the end, everybody had to go into exile, of course. You receive so many barely veiled threats before you understand one day that the barely veiled nature is going to be lifted, and then you're going to be in very serious danger. So Catano Veloso came to Europe and was very startled to find that London was a place of great tolerance. This is something very, very important for people who come from, let us say, difficult backgrounds outside of this country. We find a lot of fault with Great Britain. The whole United Kingdom is going through a ridiculous moment of introspection, of jingoism, of almost everything that is despicable. But in some ways, it's retained a well-deserved reputation for tolerance. And I put that very, very much in terms of my career. When I was holding my very first deanship in humanities at a British university, there was no other Chinese dean of humanities in all of Europe. It was only possible here. And despite the fact that we have all kinds of vexatious misgivings about the current state of society in Great Britain. It was a refreshing change from what existed elsewhere. And so I think the song by Catano Veloso, a ballad actually, London, London, is about just how peaceful and tolerant he found it and asking a policeman for directions and not being beaten up by the policeman who actually smiled at you and gave you directions was something that was new to him. And that's something he celebrated in his song. Let's listen to Caetano Veloso from 1971 as well, London, London. I'm wandering round and round, nowhere to go. I'm lonely London, London's lovely soul. I cross the streets without fear. Everybody keeps the way clear I know, I know no one here to say hello I know they keep the way clear I am lonely in London without fear I'm wandering round and round here Nowhere to go While my eyes go looking Flying saucers in the sky While my eyes go looking for flying saucers in the sky Oh Sunday, Monday, autumn pass by me And people hurry on so peacefully a group approaches a policeman He seems so pleased to please them It's good at least to live and I agree He seems so pleased at least And it's so good to live in peace And Sunday, Monday years And I agree while my eyes go looking for flying saucers in the sky. While 
Caetano Veloso sings, I'm wandering round and round, nowhere to go. I'm lonely in London, London is lovely so. I cross the streets without fear, and so on. So, yes, absolutely what you were talking, that it's a, in a way has been a place of freedom. And I know that in a past conversation you've said to me that, you know, it's it's one of the few places where people, diasporic people like you and I um, kind of feel we can belong and it is very special. No, I think so. When I come back from, let us say, authoritarian countries, intolerant countries, I always make this little pilgrimage as a ritual to the Houses of Parliament, to St. Stephen's Green beside um, the Lord's Tower. And I just stand there in acknowledgement that I'm no longer in a country like the ones I've just come out of. So I'm grateful. And I think you've got to have had experienced different countries, different environments, war zones, famine zones, caused by authoritarian narrow-mindedness uh, in so many cases, uh, and come back to a place for all of its faults, which is still reasonably open. Yes. So you are specialized very much in your research, Um and have focused on the continent of Africa in many of your writings and teachings. Um, how did that happen? Well, it began in New Zealand when we protested against uh, playing rugby with a South African Springbok team, which was racially chosen. Uh, the All Blacks, of course, the New Zealand rugby team, epitomized the whole macho aspect then of New Zealand culture. Uh, it was meant to be your ambition to be like an all-black if you were a man. And that's changed a lot, uh, I have to say, in New Zealand over the years, where rugby has become more nuanced. But for us, it became very, very much an object of protest in the sense that the only other similarly macho team in the world that could match the All Blacks were the South Africans, and that was a racially selected team. From that, we developed a critique of apartheid. That was the way that critique developed in a country like New Zealand. And so I took an interest in Africa at that point in time, helped organize tours of African, uh, by African leaders, spokespeople to New Zealand. When I was president of the National Student um, Body, uh, we brought out Herbert Chitepo, one of the uh, pioneers of the Zimbabwean liberation movement. And after I finished my graduate studies uh, here in London, uh, I was sort of seconded against my will in some ways, but I needed the money to the Commonwealth Secretariat. It was a complete accident. And after some time there, being involved as a very peripheral figure, in the negotiations to end the war in Rhodesia and to bring that country to independence as Zimbabwe. Those talks were finally successful here in London in late 1979. Basically got told uh, that I was going to be leading the reconnaissance party on behalf of the Commonwealth observers to Zimbabwe. There had never been an election observation on a national basis before. These are so common now. And so my first question to the director of the Secretary General's office was, what am I meant to do? And he said, I don't know. How do you observe an election? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Stephen, you've got one week to come up with a plan because that's when the observers, the senior observers, distinguished people, judges, cabinet ministers from different countries are going to start arriving. Uh, you're just going to have to do the length and breadth of the country, do a proper reconnoiter as best you can, hire as many cars and as light aircraft in different parts of the country, 
as you can and just have some sense of a report for us when we get there on the ground. And what tends to happen? We were thrown into the deep end. <laughs> basically, of course. I was also a very, very young member of staff, so I was dispensable. They put a very hefty insurance packet on my head. Uh, <laughs> you know, How much was it? That's right. Your wife will be very happy if you get <laughs> shot. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> so it was also, of course, an opportunity you couldn't refuse. Uh, if you don't allow yourself to be thrown into a serious deep end, nothing is going to come uh, out of your dreams and your ambitions. You can't be afraid. As it turned out, we invented election observation of the sort that is still practiced today. No one's actually departed from the formula that we extemporized in Zimbabwe from January through to March of 2000. And of course, uh, it was a time of great tension uh, trying to move between five different armies, all armed to the teeth, trying basically to make some sense of a very, very competitive environment in which many old hurts and old enmities were basically meant to be put to rest, and never entirely so, but it was meant to be an effort to put them to rest. That was a time of coming of age in a way that, uh, again, uh, I can't to thank my lucky stars enough for you know, to have had the opportunity to do that. I think I must have been incredibly naive at that time. Uh, you know, it was 1980. I'd just turned 30. You know, at that age, you don't know what you're doing. And we just got tremendously and utterly lucky uh, to stay alive as well. Well, I'm glad you did. But also careful what you're saying about 30-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> Been there, done that. (laughs) (laughs) And did that kind of, I mean, yeah, you have, I think, written most of your, done most academic research as well in Zimbabwe and worked in that country for since then, really. But did that spark an an academic interest as well? Yes, I began writing academically about Zimbabwe because of that experience. I've written about the surrounding countries as well. Uh, and also about different philosophical approaches to ethics, which are not purely African, but more fully international. But in the sense that if you're working at SOAS, you've got to have, as it were, a very pronounced and definite area focus that has been Southern Africa, and within that definitely Zimbabwe. But I took an interest in the country because of those early experiences during the electoral period of 1980. So I kept going back. Uh, Then I lived for some years in the neighboring country, Zambia, where the ANC had its exile headquarters. So I lived among uh, the comrades, as they called themselves at that point in time, but crossing the border quite often to Zimbabwe, where I got to know a number of the leading figures in the Zimbabwean political firmament. Uh, So uh, this continued right up to the 2000s, and particularly in 2000, with the advent for the first time of a strong opposition movement and Mugabe's response in terms of beginning to seize the land previously owned by white farmers, uh, there was great dissatisfaction and disaffection in what you might call civil society, which was not very well organized. So again, it came down to the musicians, as in Brazil, to make the statement. And... This is where the work of Oliver Mutakutsi is very, very important. He managed to say things in song uh, that you couldn't say on a political rostrum. But his very famous album, uh, Bavuma, came out in 2000, just at the time of the 
meltdown in Zimbabwean society, the seizure of the farms, the consequent meltdown in terms of the economy. Uh, basically, Bavuma is a song, it's a whole album of protest, and the key song in it, which everybody hummed in the streets of uh, Zimbabwe, uh, is Wasakara. And it means, uh, to use polite language, you're worn out, you're too tired, a direct reference to Robert Mugabe, who was old even then. In more colloquial language, uh, it would be as if we were saying to the president, you're completely fucked. And he says this, or rather his backing chorus says this, with such lyrical accomplishment, uh, with such beauty, that of course it became one of the great hit songs, but everyone took it as a protest song. Uh, because it was done in song, uh, Mugabe couldn't persecute or arrest him, and he became a national legend as a result of that. That put him on the map in people's consciousness far more than all of his other albums. Great. So let's listen to Oliver Mtukutsi with Wasakara. like Greek drama, political rallies as well as singing, there's the line and there's the chorus response. Yes, Very chorus much like Greek, uh, ancient Greek drama. And loads of other musical traditions Absolutely. around the world. Yeah, it's just the English <laughs> tradition that's missed out on the very <laughs> obvious way of constructing a dialogue and music. <laughs> so Oliver 
to Kutsi, um, I just spotted, passed away this January. Yes, I think uh, it was a great tragedy. He'd been sick for a long time. Mm. Uh, there were all kinds of, uh, let us say, speculations about what he died of. I think uh, it said diabetes. But... Well, what you've got are all kinds of secondary infections and diseases as a result of the great pandemic uh, that HIV and AIDS caused. And even if you're a rich person, as Mutakutsi became in the end, and even though there's still not so much the old culture of denial, but still a culture of embarrassment, people won't want to say uh, what a primary cause of death was. But certainly in terms of all kinds of secondary opportunistic causes of death, uh, you're going to still get that in a continent which has developed in many ways remarkably, particularly in terms of medical provision, but which is still not fully uniform or reliable, even if you're a rich person. So it was a tragedy. He left behind, of course, a huge legacy. He was a brave man. He was a genuinely creative person. He also did songs, which were essentially feminist songs. Uh, some lovely uh, recordings, basically in a very gentle but very, very firm way, uh, talking about women as equal creatures. So this was released in 2001. Mm. What has had, that was a year before you came to SOAS? Yes, but I was still going to Zimbabwe. Uh, when I came to SOAS, it was, as I said, very, very much at the foundation of what was then the faculty structure system here at SOAS, uh, which has now just recently been done away with for a more flatline management. It did allow for a brief period of time, in my opinion, some serious administrative and managerial work to be done at a concentrated level. And my own personal feeling right now, despite the slightly more democratic approach to management is that you've got too many people around the executive board decision-making table. Uh, so you don't have the kind of punch through uh, that three senior deans did bring to the table for a very brief moment in time. But of course, what it did do was to allow me to understand just how difficult a place SOAS was to run. And since I don't hold high office anymore, I think I can say this straight. Uh, I think it affects the student body as well as the academic body. This is the most outward-looking, most progressive institution probably in all of Europe when it comes to a view of the world which is cosmopolitan and genuinely embracing you could not be more liberal and open as you look outwards. It's also the world's most conservative place as it looks inwards. Nothing can be changed inside SOAS, the very epitome of an arrant conservatism on the part of all levels of the SOAS establishment. Uh, it's very apparent. Nothing can be changed. Well, basically, this place can't survive without some kind of change. You can't say, oh, we must do things as we've always done them. The world's moved on. Our new systems were so backward, so behind, in all so many terms as to what a good institution should be able to do, that I sometimes do worry that we've got a, a much shorter shelf life than what we might think. Yeah, I think we're living through some turbulent times, mm. both at SOAS and broader politically as well. Let's come to your last track. Okay, this is Rimsky-Korsakov. Uh, it's the beginning to his famous opera, The Invisible City of Kitez. And it's something which I find very plangent. I mean, the opera is a typical melodramatic piece in which everyone has got to die. Uh, but there's this fabled invisible city. It's sort of like the heaven that they die to reach. 
is able to turn invisible to protect people against the invasion of the heathen Tatars. So it was not politically correct, of course. At the same time, it embodied a vision of a kind of crazy afterlife in which a beautiful city of justice was inhabited by beautiful just people. Uh, and the idea that there was a city out there that was somehow invisible, you couldn't see it, it wasn't tangible. You had to cast off your mortal coil uh, to reach it. Uh, somehow a secular vision of heaven, as it were, uh, but as something that was probably worth struggling for, has always drawn me to this piece of music. So if there's one piece I want played at my funeral, it's this. Well, that will, won't be for another 150 years, I hope. But um, let's listen to Rimsky Korsakov, The Legend of the Invisible City of Kitesh. Yeah, beautiful. I think a lot of people know the kind of central theme of that. What what does it mean to you personally? Well, it's a lyric. It was one of those occasions when you were able to celebrate the melodic and the lyrical before music entered into its 20th century experimental phase, which I fully support, by the way. But I just like the sheer sentimentality of this piece of music. Uh, no apologies. It is clearly sentimental. It's Melody taken to that point very deliberately. He's trying to write a tearjerker 
Uh, I think he succeeded very much. It only really works in the prelude. I think the rest of the opera is total crap. <laughs> but the prelude, I think, is lovely and affecting. Great. Well, we're coming to an end of this um, interview. Do you feel like there was anything, I mean, you know, we could talk for longer, um, but was there anything that you, any last words that you wanted to add to all of this? No, I think that... Bearing in mind, probably our students will be listening. Well, if they listen to it, then they'll have added insight into the nature of craziness and insanity, I'm sure. I think that basically the message that comes through is that in life, you've just got to go for it. If you hold back, if you want to have a risk-averse life, if you want to have a life that is patrolled by parameters of health and safety, that's not going to work. Uh, the one thing I've always essentially loathed. I know I make my life quite miserable for many of my administrative colleagues who are in charge of things like this. I don't understand health and safety. I have absolutely no concept of health and safety. You either jump when you come to the edge of the cliff or you hold back. You might want to put on safety harness, but you want to jump. But anyway, Stephen, thank you so much for um, sharing some of your favorite musical pieces. Um, and... Yes, yes, to the next 70 years. I am Mia Laine from Sawas Radio, and thank you so much for listening, everyone.